give you guys a test, okay? It's not a hard test, but the question is, which one of these is a Bible? Well, you might go, that one's obviously a Bible. It's black. Pastor's holding it. And it does say over here, NIV, Pastor's Bible. It's a Bible, too. In fact, in some ways, this is way more of a Bible than this is. This, I have something like 30 different versions of the Bible on here. And of those 30 versions, a lot of them are in English. I got some Greek. I got some Hebrew. It's all right here. But you know, maybe not at this church, but at other churches, if I got up to preach and I had this and I didn't have this, I might get criticized. Pastor doesn't use the Bible when he preaches. What's the problem with that, right? Even though this is way more Bible than this. Interesting. Why am I telling you this? I'm telling you this because we've been investing a lot of time, and we're going to keep investing time in what is a healthy church. Because I think sometimes when our idea of what a healthy church is, is sometimes what our idea of a Bible is. We think this is a Bible and this isn't a Bible. And we have this idea of what a healthy church is, and that's what we're clinging to. And that's what we want our church to be when we're thinking of a healthy church. And that's why I keep coming back to this and keep saying, what is a healthy church? If we really want to be a healthy church, we need to understand what a healthy church is, not what a healthy church looks like. Because I don't know what a healthy church looks like. Healthy churches could look like a lot of different things. Healthy churches could be huge, they could be small, they could meet in buildings like this, they could be meeting in the park across the street. So keep in mind, when we're talking about a healthy church, I don't have in my mind the picture of this place being full and us having four or five services and, and you know, people you know, coming from all over to, to, to be here on Sunday morning. Oh, if that happened, I'm not going to complain. But even if that were happening now, I wouldn't say we're healthy simply because of that. So what is a healthy church? Healthy church is a community of disciples. So if you want to have a healthy church, if you want to have a healthy church, if you really want to be part of a healthy church, the first question you have to check off the box is, are you a disciple? Because if you're not a disciple, then what you're really saying is, I want to be around a healthy church, but I don't want to be part of a healthy church. I want to be able to come here, and there's a bunch of healthy Christians, you know, community here, and I'm kind of watching. That's what I really want. But if you really want to be part of a healthy church, it begins with the question, are you a disciple? Are you devoting your life to learning about God and the things of God, learning who Jesus is, what he, what, what he taught us? And not just having that knowledge, because remember, disciple is when knowledge 
meets God's Spirit. God's Spirit should already be in your life if you're a Christian. If you don't know God's Spirit in your life, I'm going to tell you only one of two things is possible. You're really not very smart or sensitive, and God's Spirit's like, hello, I'm here, doing all this stuff, and you're like, oh, I don't feel God's Spirit. Or you're not a Christian. Bible says when we become Christians, we receive his spirit. And so God's spirit is in our lives. We take in his word as disciples, and we become more and more like Christ. That's what it means to be a disciple. So the question you have to check off is, I am a disciple. If you want a healthy church, I am a disciple. And if not, I need to take steps to becoming a disciple. That's the first thing. But it also says a community, a community of disciples. It's not just us individually. It's not just us coming to Sunday school and saying, okay, I got a Bible study lesson today, and then going home. It's caring and loving, about, and loving each other enough that we want to know one another, and we want to serve together, and we want to live life together. That's what a community is. Most of what we have in our, our American society today is not community. Because we don't really know our neighbors. We barely know each other when we're in our own homes. But community, a community of disciples, healthy church, I encourage you always look on the back of your sermon notes and you're going to see. Um, you're going to see the, the different words that describe what a healthy church is. I encourage you to keep reading through Romans 12. Read it every week. Remind yourself of what Paul says a healthy church is. And now we're going through the Sermon on the Mount. And let me tell you, the Sermon on the Mount is the way Jesus kind of made people run away. You see, when Jesus did healings, and when he said things that sounded like revolutionary, oh, he could get crowds. People would just flock to him. Because it's cool. I mean, I mean you're, you're making blind guys see? I want to see that. You're railing against the machine? I want to hear that. But then Jesus would start talking about what it means to be a disciple. And whenever he started talking about what it means to be a disciple, people were like, oh, okay. Tell me when the next show is and I'll come back. But this kind of stuff, eh, it's not what I'm signing up for. And he's already said some hard things. He's already said some things like, you know, what's in your mind, whether it's hatred or whether it's lust, it's the same as actually killing or committing adultery. He gave us no space to tell untruths. He said, if you're a disciple, you are, you are a person of truth. And of course, if we're going to speak truth, we gotta know truth. He's already said hard things. He's gonna say harder things to come. He's gonna say stuff like, you wanna follow me? Sell everything you have and give it to the poor. You want to follow me? Don't wait for your elderly parents to die. Follow me. He said, if you want to follow me, you know what's 
it's going to be brother against brother, parents against child. This is what's going to happen. You want to follow me? Okay. And maybe you're like, well, that's not what I signed up for. I signed up for a, a different program of Christianity. Um, that was when we were at the dock choosing Christianity, there was, there was the battleship Christianity. That's where, you know, you know there's a war going on, and, and that's where the serious Christians went. I signed up for the other one. It was the cruise ship Christianity. You know, that's the one where, you know, we, we play shuffleboard and we get good food, and people tell us nice things and do everything for us. And if there's a battle coming, our captain is so great, he actually drives around the battle. He won't lead us into it. Well, sorry to burst your bubble, because if we're truly Christians, then one thing that we all will increasingly become is a target. Become a target. If your friend told you, hey, um, I got this new uh, um, bow and arrow set. Want to go to the range and fire off the bow and arrow? You want to go? And you're like, yeah, it'd be great. It'd be awesome. And so, you know, you, you, your friend picks you up and, and your friend says, oh, by the way, I got this shirt I want you to wear. And this was the design on the shirt. Well, if you're smart, you're getting out of the car at this point, right? But when you're a Christian, when you're truly living as Christ, when, you're for, when church is truly being the body of Christ, this target gets bigger and bigger. Because one thing we know for sure and this has been true for thousands of years. The world hates God. The world hates Jesus. It always has. It always will. That's part of the mind-blowing thing about John 3.16. It says, for God so loved the world. But if we were to expound it, it would be, for God so loved the world that hated him, that rejected him, that though he did everything for them, it went a different way. And God still loved that world. The world hates God. Now, you might go like, oh, that's not true. Well, it's not true if you don't understand who God is. You see, um, you know, and I keep advertising for you guys to come on Wednesday or Sunday night to hear Eric talk about worldviews, because one of the things that came out in the very beginning is the common American perception of God, not just the American perception of God, the American Christian perception of God. This is what a percentage of people, and if, the percent, if our church is like the percentage, I hope it's not, but if our church is like the percentage, it means nine out of ten of you believe this about God. You believe God is an undemanding God who is there for you when you have crises. 
He's good, he's powerful, but he is undemanding. And he's there to save you when you have problems. Yeah, you know what? If that's who God really is, no reason to hate him. It's kind of cool. But let me tell you, there's no reason to love him either. And there's certainly no reason to respect him. It's not who God is. And if that's someone's conception of God, then, yeah, the statement's not true. The world doesn't hate that kind of God. The world loves that kind of God. You know why the world loves that kind of God? Because the world created that kind of God. It's the perfect American God. You know, oversee us over all, save us when we're in trouble, but never ask us anything because we're free, we're independent, we're Americans. Never demand anything, but save us when we get in trouble. Well, the other kind of God that the world often thinks about If this was really who God is, and when people think about this kind of God, they actually reject that God even exists. And that's the demanding God, the judgmental God, the God that sits up, wait, sits up in heaven waiting for you to make mistakes so he can condemn you. That kind of God, the world doesn't hate that kind of God because the world doesn't believe that God exists. In fact, if that God did exist, if that kind of God did exist, the world would, would say, you know, we can kind of reject that God because we're more forgiving than that God is. We're more loving than that God is. If you watch a lot of movies today, especially movies about, that are these kind of superhero movies, they often have God figures. And the God figures are almost always like this God. Demanding, judgmental. But that's not who God is. Let me tell you, the God, the only God, who he is, and he is the one the world hates. You see, the world hates the holy God who loves so perfectly that he wants to save us from our sin and be in community with us forever. Now you go, why would someone hate this God? Isn't it kind of the same as the, as the loving, undemanding God? No, li listen to it. He loves you so much, he is going to save you from your sin. In other words, this God has the audacity to believe that you are sinful and that you need to be saved. This is the God the world hates. This is the God that the world cannot accept because God, this God is confronting them right there. It's confronting them this fundamental belief of who they think they are. 
Most of the people who come from a different worldview, they think that human beings are essentially good, that if you just gave them the right opportunities and the right education, they would, then the world would be a much more peaceful and harm, harmonious place. It's not true. History shows us this isn't true. And the Bible declares that it isn't true. If you take someone who's essentially evil and you educate them and you give them money, you have just given an evil person a lot of power and a lot of intellect. Probably not the smartest thing to do. But this holy God, this holy God who loves so perfectly, he wants to save us from our sin. And it's more than that. He doesn't want to just save us from our sin so then we can go our own way and live our happy lives. He wants to save us from our sins so that he can be in a relationship with us. He can be in a relationship with us. Now some of you may be a little too old to remember these days in your life. But some of you, you can. You can remember back maybe when, when you were kind of the double agent, when you were a teenager, right? You're a teenager and, you know, around your friends, you acted a certain way. And then around your parents, you acted another way. Now maybe none of you are like that. Maybe I'm confessing here to being this weird guy who was that way. But I suspect you guys were probably like this. That, that, you know, when mom and dad are around, you acted a certain way. Parents, when, when they're gone and you're with, hanging out with your friends, you act a different way. Sometimes radically different. Totally different person. If your parents then came to you, you know, and you're a teenager and you're kind of living this life and you kind of like it. But your parents are being convicted. They're being convicted of the fact that they don't feel they're being good parents because in some ways they aren't because they don't really know their kids. And so they're like, okay, we're going to solve this. We're going to spend more time together. Oh, man. You're like, no. <laughs> That's not the solution. The solution is let's, let's spend less time together. When, when God says, I want to spend every moment with you forever. For people who, don't, who try to act one way when they're around God and a different way when they're not, that's like a death sentence. Because what it means is, i got to pretend to be something that I'm not all the time for forever. I don't want that. And so the world hates this God. And so what do we do? What do we do if we're becoming more and more like Christ? If we're following God more, we're becoming more and more of a target, what are we supposed to do? We should be preparing, right? Maybe we should build a, a wall out there in the front and put sentry posts up there to protect ourselves. Maybe we can all get a secret handshake so we can recognize each other. We're going to become a target. Let's look at what Jesus says. 
Matthew 5, verses 38 to 42, he says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. I love and hate these kind of Bible verses because they're really clear. You can't really hide from it. We always want to explain away by saying to Jesus, Jesus, yeah, that was great back in the first century when everything was easy. You don't know what it's like to be in the United States in the 21st century. You don't know the kind of enemies I have. And that's because we don't really understand the first century. Jesus is using specific examples. He's talking to Jewish people. Jewish people are a conquered people in the first century. They were conquered by the Romans. We don't know this. We don't know what it's like to have a foreign power come and conquer us and, and occupy our land. We don't know it. Oh, we read about it. We hear about it. People sometimes act like that. But it's nothing like Roman times. Almost everything he refers to has a direct thing related to what was a Roman soldier was allowed to do. And he knew by saying these things, it was the kind of things like, it's like pressing buttons that make people angry. It's like if you're someone who it's almost April 15th, and you're just, oh, taxes. And then someone comes along and goes, you know what I think? I think we should make the tax code more complicated and we should raise the rates. You know that they're either joking or they're just trying to pick a fight with you. You know what, I think we should give 90% of our, of our income to the government and it should be as difficult as possible. It should take us six months just to fill out the tax forms. You'd be really upset. Well, Jesus is doing that kind of stuff. He's pressing these buttons that he knows is going to make these people, these people upset and angry. They all have either seen this or they've experienced it themselves. And what is he trying to tell them? Well, the big thing he's trying to tell them is, disciples, disciples, you do not seek justice for yourself. Understand that. Disciples, do not seek justice for yourself. He's not talking about seeking justice for others. He's saying justice for yourselves. You want to respond to being a target? Don't seek justice for yourself. And he says, you know, justice is eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Someone does something to you, you get to do something equal back to them. Someone takes something from you, you get to get something equal back from them. And Jesus says, no. Do not resist the one who is evil. 
If someone slaps you on the right cheek, don't go, justice, justice demands that you be punished. He says, no, turn the other cheek. You know what's greatly offensive, I mean, what's great about this passage is that it offends pretty much across the political spectrum. There's people on the more conservative right side, they hate this verse. There's people on the, on the more liberal left side, they hate this verse. They hate it in different ways, but they hate it. Really? Turn the other cheek? And we always joked about this when we were younger. Oh yeah, turn the other cheek, and if they smack that one, then Jesus says you can go whatever you want on them. Right, you can go crazy, go MMA. Why would he say something like this? Here's why. The focus of the disciples' life is to show God's love. It's to share the gospel. And how are you going to share a gospel of grace if you are, uh, up, if you are obsessed with getting justice? If you're obsessed with getting justice for yourself, how can you share the gospel of grace? Can't. You see, when we demand justice, we distort the message of grace. On a personal level, when our focus is on justice, it's harder to forgive. There's a lot of people that say, you know, I'll forgive when he gets justice, when he gets what's due him. You know what? You're not going to forgive. Oh, you're going to feel better. You might be a little happier. You might feel a little satisfied, but you're not going to forgive. Because if you were going to forgive, you would have forgiven whether they received justice or not. Whether someone receives justice has nothing to do with whether you should forgive them. Two separate things. We like to tie them together. But if we're seeking justice, we find it harder to forgive. If we cannot forgive, we're not really loving. It's, people go, well, you know, they, they, and I've done this too. I've said these things like, ah, I was backed into a corner. What else could I do? What else? It's the only thing I could have done. What do you expect me to do? I don't know what I expect you to do, because I'm going to tell you, sometimes I do celebrate when someone gives someone else a little comeuppance. But I know what Jesus said to do. When you're in a position where you don't know what else to do, God says, you know, I expect you to love. That's what I expect. I expect you to love them. That's it. Jesus isn't saying you shouldn't seek justice because, you know, you just let things go. He's saying, no, every situation you use as a way to display my love, my grace. And let me tell you, if you're struggling with this, then that means that your Christianity has been polluted by something else. 
They need to deal with it. I need to deal with it. This focus on justice for ourselves obscures the gospel of God's grace. Because we know we did not receive justice from God. Had we received justice from God, we would not exist. We are objects of His grace. Does this mean you just pretend it didn't happen? No. It means the same thing I talked about last week, that anytime you're in a situation, if it's with Christians, if it's with other Christians, it's not to seek justice. It's instead of seeking justice, it's to say, how can we work through this situation so that our relationship emerges better and stronger? But if we're honest, when someone wrongs us, that's the last thing we want. What we want is justice. We want them to be penalized. We want them to get fired. We want something to happen. That's what we want. We want bad karma to come down upon them so we can go, that's what happens when you go against God. That's what we want. But what we should want as disciples is to say, how can we go through this situation, as terrible as it is, and not focus on justice, but focus on how, when we're done, our relationship is stronger and better and more God-glorifying? How can we do that? I wish I knew this lesson when I was, you know, 15, 16, 17, 20, 25, 30, 35, 40, 45, 50. <laughs> I wish... I would have so many great stories to tell you. But it wasn't until later in my life that I really understood this. And it's killing our churches. Killing them. Disciples serve. They serve even their enemies. They don't just say, okay, you know, the Bible says we should bless our enemies. Okay, God bless them. Or the Bible says that you know, God can, you know, can teach and reach even our enemies. Okay, God, reach and teach them. No, it's you blessing your enemies. You teaching them. And you don't teach them by lecturing them. You teach them by showing them God's grace and God's love. When he's talking about suing to take your tunic and then you give them your cloak, in, in the first century, this cloak was so important. It was almost like it was for survival. It was an essential. Especially when the nights got cold. You needed that cloak to survive. In fact, there was, there, there was there's, you know, some situations where if, if, if you had to give your cloak to someone because you couldn't pay a debt, they had to give you back that cloak at the end of the day so that you would live through the night and then you'd give it back to him the next day. That's how important the cloak is. It's not like they had a closet full of clothes either. It's like, oh yeah, I give them one cloak because I got three more at home. No, this is it. The tunic was the you know, thing worn closer to the body. The cloak was put on the outside. It says, give them that too. You know how crazy that is? 
You know how crazy that would be, like if you got sued? You got sued and, and the judge says, you know, you gotta pay $5,000 and you're like, ah, okay, that's not enough though. Can you make it 10? Can you make it 10? That's what he's saying. He's even saying more than that. When he says, anyone forces you to go one mile, a, a Roman soldier was legally allowed to tell anybody to carry his pack a mile. Jesus goes, okay. Here's what most people do. Oh, man, they make me carry this pack. As soon as they get one mile, put it down. Jesus says, nah, just keep walking with them. Go another mile. You know what's going to happen in the second mile? Roman soldiers are going to be like, wow, it's different. They might even ask, why are you doing this? You know what every Christian should love? Every Christian should love that when they are loving like only God can love, when they're showing God's grace and forgiveness to other people, the question everybody should love, every Christian should want to hear is, why are you doing this? Because when you hear that question, somebody is ready to hear about Jesus. They're ready. Disciples, they serve even their enemies. And then that last verse, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Disciples meet the needs of the needy. Disciples meet the needs of the needy. And let me tell you, the, the, the biblical teaching on this, the New Testament teaching is, it begins here among the community of faith. That there should be no one in this church who is in genuine need. We meet each other's needs first. There's a couple reasons we don't do it. We all know one reason, we don't want to. Or we're afraid, we're afraid like, oh, if I start helping one person, then you know what? 10 people might ask me for help, or 20, or 30. Yeah, it could happen. It's scary, this love thing. It kind of gets out of control. There's another reason we don't meet the needs, and I think it's more common in our church People don't want to share them. It's like, I got to make sure no one thinks I have any needs. I need to make sure that everybody thinks I am rowing my boat and nobody's helping me. Certainly not my brothers and sisters in Christ. Not them. We need to meet each other's needs, but to meet each other's needs, we need to know each other's needs. But Jesus is talking more than just about meeting the needs of people in the church. Yes, it begins there. It is a great witness to know that, that everyone who comes in this, to this place, that their needs can be met. It is a great testimony. But we're also called to meet the needs of those in our community. I, I, 
this whole thing with um, you know, the, the rise of homelessness, not just in Hawaii, but across, across our nation. I think it's the great test. It's the great modern test for the church. Not just our churches, but not our church, but all churches. What are we going to do? And I think God is, is, I think the homeless people are a grace from God. And let me explain this to you. If you look back over about the past 50, uh, 50, 60 years in American history, and then you see what the Christian church has, has done. People like to use this word, this phrase, oh, they've been on the wrong side of history. I don't like that phrase. You know why I don't like that phrase? Because people who say it think they're on the right side of history. Truth is, those people are just on the wrong side too. They just have less, less of an excuse. We, we ignored, in a lot of ways, in the 40s and 50s, the civil rights movement. We almost pretended it wasn't going on and sometimes worked against it. The rise on the mainland of, of, the, of the inner city and the urban blight. What so many Christians, so many churches did was, was they said, okay, you know what we do when, when our neighborhoods are falling apart? We run away and we go to nicer neighborhoods. We don't stay and make a difference. Homosexuality. Christians in America missed an incredible opportunity. When the rest of society largely was treating homosexuals like, like pariah, mocking them, the church had an opportunity to show love to them, to be different from the culture, not to condone, remember, the, the God that the world hates is, is the God who refuses to leave us in our sins. We miss the boat. We miss the boat, and now we don't know what to do. We can't look back over 30, 40, 50 years and say, you know, we've been ministering to people in these different lifestyles for a long time. Maybe we didn't have the success, but we've been doing it. We've been thinking about it. We're trying to help them. We're doing all we can. Have we? I think what's right in front of us right now is the homeless. And all we can think about sometimes is how much of a problem they are, about how we wish they weren't around. I'm not going to tell you that it's going to be easy. I'm just going to say that Jesus just said, if you're a disciple and someone asks you for something, you meet their needs. Period. You can try to, try to explain this away. You can try, like, well, I don't want to be an enabler. Fine, don't be an enabler, but still meet their needs. Are you, if you say, I don't want to be an enabler, are you, are you desperately thinking about how you can feed somebody without being an enabler? Are you? That's the heart of a disciple. The person who's not a disciple says, out of sight, out of mind. I stop thinking about them. I've got my excuses. I've got mine too. I've got a whole list of them. I'll share them with you. It makes you feel good when you drive by somebody. 
and say they'll just use it on drugs. Makes you feel good. I wish Jesus gave us an easier road, but he doesn't. It's pretty clear. And it's not just physical needs. Yeah, I talked about homelessness, but it's other things too. There are people who have emotional needs. There are people who just need a friend, just someone to talk to. There are people who need advice. There are people who are hurting. And they're all around us. They're in this room. Do we know? Do we care? Finally, disciples always love. They always love and they always seek reconciliation. They always want healthier and stronger relationships. I've told you it's the sign of maturity as a Christian. How quick are you to seek reconciliation and to develop stronger relationships? It's a test of our love. And it should be the objective of all relationships. Stronger and healthier. As disciples, we should be known for our compassion. Now, I know like, some, when, when somebody starts talking about what the Bible says and they start talking about real-world situations that we all confront every day, I know what happens because I'm the same way. I'm like, yeah, 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 whatever. Because it's hitting close to home. It means I actually have to think about my attitudes and my behavior. And let me tell you something. I would love to, to talk to you guys about it. I'd love to have somebody come in tell me how we can interpret that verse any different way. Tell me how we can do with give to the one who begs from you. How, how that can be interpreted in any other way. I'd love to hear from you. Because I would like to have another path. But disciples, they're known for their compassion. So how do we love our enemies? Three quick things. See other people first in how they are related to God. We've talked about this before. Don't see people as just people. How are they related to God? If they're non-Christians, most important thing is they see God's grace and love and they hear the gospel. If they're not, if they, I mean, if they are Christians, to see how we can develop a stronger and healthier relationship. Second thing, ask God what you should do to show his love to them. Make the focus on his love and how you can show it. And finally, pursue opportunities to reconcile, even the ones that might seem dangerous. We start hearing about discipleship. We want to talk ourselves out of it. We want to talk down Jesus and say, Jesus, yeah, that's crazy talk. Good stuff, I know, got the message, I should care more. I encourage you, read these verses again with fresh eyes and see there's a high demand on us, an impossible demand, and we need Jesus to meet it.